0: Hello, and welcome back to Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. Today is part three of Andalusia and the final episode about Spain, but as usual, I have to begin with some housekeeping issues. I have intended on every one of these podcasts to give you recommended reading in case you're interested in pursuing more information, and I... As you know, don't read from a script. So each and every time, I have forgotten to do that. And I want to make up for that right now by telling you that if you want to read more about Thessaloniki, there is no better book than a book by Mark Mazover, M-A-Z-O-W-E-R, called Salonika City of Ghosts. It traces the history of Christians, Muslims, and Jews there from 1430 to 1950, and does so in an irresistibly appealing way. For Montenegro, which was episode two, there probably is somewhere a good book about just Montenegro. There's probably not anywhere a good book about Montenegro and its Jews. But I want to recommend two books which will help with your understanding of the of balkan history in general the first is called the balkans a short history by the same author as the author of salonica city of ghosts mark mazover the second is a much older work which is really one of the great works of western literature and it's sort of a travelogue written by rebecca west in the interwar years actually in the late 1930s about all the lands that constituted the former Yugoslavia. The name of this book is The Black Lamb and the Gray Falcon, and it is deeply absorbing. You could take a year to read this book. You could divide it into weekly portions, but you will learn a lot about all the lands which eventually constituted the SFRY, the Socialist Federated Republics of Yugoslavia. Finally, for Sarajevo, The best book out there is a book by Geraldine Brooks called The People of the Book. It is devoted to both a history of the Sarajevo Jewish community and specifically the Sarajevo Haggadah and the Muslims who helped save it from Nazi destruction during World War II. Now, on these three episodes on Andalusia, the work from which I am quoting extensively is called... Ornament of the World, by a woman named Maria Rosa Menocal, M-E-N-O-C-A-L. The subtitle of this book is How Muslims, Jews, and Christians Created a Culture of Tolerance in Medieval Spain. And we are going to wrap up that section today with a surprising but very natural transition to some of the Jewish communities in Eastern Europe, and specifically in Ukraine. And before we do that, I also wanted to note that at the suggestion of many of you, this week's episode begins with a little bit of music and also ends with the same music, and I would love to know if any of you guess the tune or the source of this tune. Those of you who access this podcast on Facebook know how to reach me there with comments, questions, whatever, and they're always welcome. If you don't access this on Facebook, but some other way through Apple Podcasts or Google or whatever, feel free to use my email, which is t-l-h-o-m-a-s at yahoo.com. All right. With all of that housekeeping work out of the way, let's plunge into episode six, the final episode on Andalusia. Where we closed last week was with the conquest of Sevilla, by Ferdinand III of Castile in 1248 and his burial there in the main mosque, which today is the largest Gothic cathedral in the world, having been repurposed as so many of the great old mosques in Andalusia were. And we still need to cover the third great center of Andalusian Jewry and of the Islamic period in Andalusia. And that is Granada. Now, Ferdinand's death took place in the middle of the 13th century. But we're going to back up for a minute to the beginning of the 11th century. We talked briefly when we focused on Cordoba about Shmuel HaNagid or Shmuel Ibn Nagrela, or Shmuel HaLevi, who was born in 993 during the final years of the caliphate. And in 1013... When the city was sacked by fundamentalists, he and his family moved initially to Malaga, a prosperous trading port, and they made a lot of money there. But Shmuel Hanagid, who was a prodigy, didn't stay for long in that seaside city, but instead moved inland to an almost brand new city just being built along the Daro River. It is built on a beautiful site with clear views of the always snow-capped Sierra Nevadas, the snowy mountains, and his brilliance caused him to become almost immediately the vizier of the local rulers in Granada. By the time Shmuel was 34, he was designated prince the head of the venerable jewish community of granada which was sometimes known in arabic as granada of the jews because the jews had for some centuries been settled on the hill dominating the river valley sort of natural fortress which on top of this hill still stood the ruins of an old castle and that stronghold was marked by the distinctive red clay from which it was built and it was already known as the Alcala Alhambra, the Red Castle. And it was that Hamra that would stick, and the place would eventually and then forever become known as the Alhambra. Now, several comments on, first of all, Shmuaha Nagid, and second of all, on the Alhambra itself. So the Nagid's first assignment was almost immediately to begin rebuilding the castle and the city on that hill. bright red clay, his buildings being partially fortifications and partially shows of cultural force. Shmuel's aesthetic visions, his notions of what a city could and should be like, were as sophisticated as his writing, which had put the locals to shame. The tastes of Shmuel had obviously been formed during his youth in Cordoba. And he passed these tastes along to his son, Yosef, who was both his heir as Nagid and also the editor of his father's poetry. It was Yosef who first built the gardens on the Red Hill adjacent to the Alhambra. Those gardens are still there. And I have to say to anybody who's not been there that the Alhambra is a collection of some of the most incredible spaces, buildings, fountains, courtyards, and gardens that you will see anywhere on earth. It's incredibly complicated to get in. You have to go online and prepay a reservation and you have to show up at a certain time because they want to control what would otherwise be unmanageable crowds. But it is absolutely worth it and very easy to lose yourself for a day or two wandering around this splendid assemblage of buildings, gardens, and vistas. But let's talk about the politics behind Granada and why it was ultimately the last stronghold of the Muslims in Spain. So for the politics, we have to go back once again to Ferdinand III and his conquest of Sevilla, Cordoba, etc., etc. Ferdinand had not made these conquests on his own, nor was he aided by Christian forces from rival kingdoms. Rather, he had made his conquest in the old-fashioned Andalusian way through allying himself with a Muslim. After the Almohads were defeated in 1212, there were, again, all these Taifa-like entities that sprang up. And among the leaders of these taifas, the most successful was a man named Muhammad ibn Yusuf ibn Nasr. Nasr became the name of the last Muslim dynasty in Europe, the Nasrids, but this first Nasrid was known in his own lifetime as Ibn Ahmar. He was able to defeat his Muslim rivals by allying himself with Ferdinand of Castile, and the deal struck by the two of them somewhere near Granada early in the year 1236, was fairly simple. Ferdinand would leave the lovely mountain-ringed city of Granada to Ibn Ahmar and his people, and Ibn Ahmar would help Ferdinand take the city the Christian really coveted, the one upriver from Seville on the Guadalquivir, Cordoba. Thanks to Ferdinand's protection and the protection of his successors, Ibn Ahmar was able to install himself, and as it turned out, 250 years worth of his descendants in the relative seclusion and safety of the Sierra Nevada in one of the Shangri-Las of the West, namely Granada. Around this city was thus crafted the last Islamic kingdom of the European Middle Ages, little more than a miniature jewel box version of what had once been Al-Andalus. The size of the Jewish community in Granada is insignificant today it has less jewish memory than any of the other cities we've discussed but it has a great deal of christian memory and i want to focus on that with you as we discuss the unification of spain and then spain's emergence as a great empire in fact from the end of the 1500s until 1810 So for a period of more than 200 years, Spain was the largest European empire in the world. So one of the ways in which Christian power was consolidated and expanded throughout the Iberian Peninsula during these centuries is through, on the one hand, dynastic marriages, and on the other hand, the absorption of smaller kingdoms by larger ones. The largest two kingdoms were Castile and Aragon, and those two kingdoms were united through the marriage of the famous power couple, also known as Las Reyes Católicos, the Catholic monarchs, Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand. They and their forebears had united literally dozens of smaller kingdoms scattered all through the Iberian Peninsula, and they were amalgamated eventually into larger units called New Castile, Old Castile, León, Aragón, Catalonia, the Basque Country, Galicia, and many others. I mean, I am certainly forget. One is León, one is Valencia. There were countless of these smaller polities that eventually merged and this dynastic marriage between Ferdinand and Isabella took place in 1469 when Isabella was 18 years old and Ferdinand only 17. But most scholars agree that the reunification of Spain can essentially be traced back to this marriage. It was a dynastic union of two crowns rather than a unitary state. Castile and Aragon remained separate kingdoms until the Nueva Planta decrees, which were issued during the years from 1707 to 1716. So it's a union that could have fallen apart, in fact. But through careful management, not only stayed together, but got stronger. One of the steps in strengthening this was the elimination of, really, the last Muslim stronghold in Spain, and that was Granada. Now, that took place in a series of steps, which began with the agreements of capitulation that were the terms of surrender of the city of Granada, which had been a Muslim stronghold, for 250 years, but the terms of this capitulation had been agreed to several months before it actually happened, in the fall of 1491, in a secret agreement between the last of the Nasrids, named Mohammed the 11th, but nicknamed Boabdil, and the Catholic monarchs. There was no bloodshed in the city and no damage done to the precious public spaces. Boabdil left Granada in peace but sighing with regret on his way out accompanied by his mother who observed tartly that he should not cry like a woman for a place he would not defend like a man a little bit old fashioned but in fact boab deal couldn't have thought because he was completely surrounded and totally overwhelmed surrender was inevitable And so he handed over the keys to the Alhambra, his ancestral home, to Ferdinand and Isabella in a big ceremony on January 2nd. Uh, The terms of the agreement of capitulation were that Muslims would be allowed to stay and be unharmed and not harassed and proclaimed as full citizens, etc., etc. But these terms were abrogated within a few months, and a new decree appeared which would expel All Jews and Muslims from Granada on July 31st, 1492. This decree was issued on March 31st, 1492. So it basically gave Jews and Muslims four months to pack up their lives and find a new home somewhere outside of Spain, essentially. Even though... Many of these Jews and newly converted Christians and Muslims were still working at the highest levels of the Christian government as they had been for centuries. The most eloquent and persuasive of these court Jews with direct access to the monarchs was Yitzhak Abravanel, and he managed all that could be managed. In the face of this unprecedented tragedy, he managed to get the original date July 31st, changed to August 2nd, which in 1492 happened to correspond to the ninth day of the month of Av in the Jewish calendar, the anniversary of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the occasion of many disastrous tragedies in Jewish history. And Abravanel wanted to make it clear forever that the expulsion from Spain marked the tragic end of a long sojourn in the. in a promised land. But this tragedy neither began nor ended in 1492. Isabella died herself not terribly long thereafter in 1504, and her death ended the remarkably successful political partnership and personal relationship of her marriage with Ferdinand. Ferdinand remarried but produced no living heir. Had there been one, Aragon would doubtless have been separated from Castile. But as it was, the daughter of the Catholic monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella, whose name was Joanna, succeeded to the crown of Castile, but was deemed unfit to rule. And after the death of her husband, Philip the Fair, Philippe Le Bel, Ferdinand retained power in Castile as the regent until his death in 1516. Ferdinand is buried alongside his first wife, Isabella, in the cathedral in Granada, a beautiful central church that was not historically a mosque. And Joanna's son, Charles I, also known as Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, came to Spain, and until his mother's death, she was nominal co-ruler of both Castile and Aragon, Upon her death, Charles succeeded to the territories that his grandparents had accumulated and brought many of the Habsburg territories in Europe, in Italy, in the Netherlands, and elsewhere to the expanding Spanish Empire. Also began a sort of love-hate relationship with his cousins, the Habsburgs of Austria-Hungary. And that relationship and the notion that there were Habsburgs in both southwestern Europe and northeastern Europe explains an interesting transition to our next episode which will take place in the city of Lviv in northwestern Ukraine in a province that became known only after the Austrian Habsburgs conquered it as Galicia because if their Spanish cousins could have a Galicia well by golly they were going to have one too. So I look forward to talking with you again in the near future and hope you found this both enjoyable and informative. Bye.